Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting Podcast. Visit our website at www.oalaig.org where you'll find three separate speaker feeds with over 200 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Nikki. Hi, I'm Nikki Compulsive Hi. Boy, this is kind of a formidable thing here. Um, I did speak here actually once before a couple of years ago and met one of my very dear friends, um, Atusa, and thank you for asking me to speak through Leslie, and here I am. (sighs) Where to begin? Okay, I think that this disease started for me, I'd say, sort of teenage years. I, I do not remember entering the world as a compulsive eater. I think many of us did. But my experience as a child was pretty normal, whatever that means, I'm not sure. Um, My relationship to food felt pretty normal. My relationship to my body felt fairly normal. Um, I was an athlete. Um, I was a gymnast, a trained uh, competitive gymnast and a dancer. And I had a certain amount of um, attention put on my body because of my childhood career, for lack of a better word, um, and a lot of um, positive reinforcement um, from society, from coaches, from teachers, um, from friends, from my mother, in a very big way from my mother, um, for being fit, for being fit, Um, and uh, so much so that somewhere along the line, my identity started being wrapped up in that a little bit, Um, just a little bit, just gradually, a little bit. And it wasn't until um, I was probably about 15 or 16 years old, um, maybe even a little older, um, because I had been a dancer and a gymnast for a lot of years, and maybe some of the anorexics in the rooms will uh, relate to this, um, I didn't start menstruating until I was much older, teenager, 17, almost 18 years old, I think. Sorry, guys, I'm giving you the bare facts. Um, Bear with me. We won't stay there long. Um, but what happened um, was, and that's, and that's typical of uh, very athletic people, and I know sometimes our anorexics amongst us um, have delayed or missed uh, menstrual cycles on the account of that. And so what happened is when it finally did come and the body finally did start to actually change, um, I made a decision that that was unacceptable to me. And when the changes that occurred that would be considered positive changes to much of the world Um, because I had been an athlete and because I had been a dancer and because I had gotten so much attention, praise, love, affection, etc. for being thin, for being fit, for being athletic and blah, blah, blah. Um, I made the decision that this was a bad thing. And as my body just started to take the tiniest little bit of curves, um, it became intolerable to me very, very quickly. And um, I feel like my... um, career as a compulsive eater started almost on a dime, like it was a very specific kind of moment within a year or two, and I remember the first conversation that I had with someone, a fellow dancer, um, when I said, the very first time the words passed my lips, do you think I need to lose any weight? And she said, you? No. 
And then she looked again, and she said, if you really want, I guess you could lose three pounds. <laughs> and for me, that was the beginning of the end. I chased that three pounds, and that five pounds, and that seven pounds, and the 15, and the 20, and the 25, and the 10, and the 5, and the 10, and the 12, and the 5, and the 4, and the 6, and you get it. It always stayed. It never got beyond about... I don't know because I too throughout I actually got rid of this my my sponsor actually had me take the scale and ceremoniously bring it outside to the dumpster and toss it in. Um, and by the way, if there are newcomers here and don't know what this throwing out the scale thing is or putting the scale away thing, it, it, it's just everybody does it their own way. It's, there's no rules. You don't have to get rid of your scale. I'm so glad I did. It was really liberating. But from um, from the moment that I made the decision that I had three extra pounds till the moment that I threw out that scale, I don't know, um, I, 25, 30 years later, I guess. I'm not going to sit here and do the math. That could take a long time. Um, but 25, 30 years later, that whole time was spent dealing with that 15 pounds or so that was unacceptable to me. Um, <clears throat> so it's really important to my career as a compulsive eater that I don't diet. To my recovery as a compulsive eater that I don't diet. Because that's how it really all started for me. I, I did not so much find myself just wanting to binge just because. Um, I found myself first wanting to binge because I had this goal, which was changing my body. And then when I found it difficult to do, I would then do the obvious thing that a compulsive eater would want to do, is I would eat. And then I would try to lose, and then I would eat and try to lose, and try to lose, and eat, 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 etc. This took many forms over the years for me. Um, I think that um, as a teenager and a very young woman, it was probably more extreme. It was probably more dramatic because I was probably a more extreme, more dramatic person at that age. So the binges were probably more extreme, um, junkier, crazier, um, and I got into some kind of like, um, oh, actually, wait a minute. No, timeline. I got into program first. There was a period uh, many years ago, about 20-some-odd years ago, when I came into OA. I must have been 18, 19, 20 years old, somewhere in there. And, um, and my very first meeting, I identified right away. I thought, oh, yeah, these are my people. These are definitely my people. And um, I did not get a great sponsor. I did not start working steps. I did stick around and attend meetings for about, I think, about three years. I don't remember hardly anyone. I was in L.A. for most of it. I was also in London. But I was in L.A., and I don't even remember a lot of people because um, I wasn't super active. I just sort of visited. Um, I wouldn't have seen it that way then. I felt like I was had a program. Um, but it turns out that for me, from my experience, having a program is having steps, having a sponsor and having steps and having sponsees. And so I stuck around for a couple years, didn't really get a great sponsor, didn't really work steps, didn't really get abstinent, but thought OA was a cool place and glad that there were people that I could identify with. I went away for some years, probably about 10 years or so, and was working. And um, I was uh, singing and dancing at the time on cruise ships, and um, my father was diagnosed with uh, terminal brain cancer, and um, 
I found myself more and more and more obsessed with my body and more and more obsessed with my food and more and more obsessed with myself. And uh, what I understand um, about this disease, what the big book has taught me, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and what I entirely find to be true for myself is that this is a disease of self-centeredness. And um, um, I really could see through my father's illness that what I had was a spiritual sickness and that what I didn't have was a 15-pound body problem. But it took that for me to see it. Um, because as my father was dying and, um, and the family was gathering around and helping and being a part of and uh, taking trips to the hospital and helping him out and administering medicine and talking to doctors, I was not only continuing to work, which was fine as a choice. My father gave me his blessing. He said, please keep working, keep traveling. But I just wasn't present not just physically, emotionally, spiritually. I had checked out. And the truth is, I had already been doing that for 20 years as a compulsive eater and body obsessor. But it was now getting clear to me. This was the moment when I began to see that I had a spiritual malady and not a physical one. Um, Not that there isn't a physical component, but that um, I've started to really see that the treatment really needed to be spiritual in nature. This was after um, some years of, thank you, of uh, laxative abuse, um, extreme laxative abuse. I'll just give you the glamorous details in case there's any newcomers that want to know how fun this disease can be. Um, Because it is being recorded on the Internet, so I might as well just put it all out there. So um, if you haven't done the laxative thing, uh, this is not an advertisement for it. Please don't. I do not recommend. It's not fun. It's a lot of work, and it takes a lot of, speaking of math, which I'm not good at, you have to calculate when things are going to happen and figure it out, and if you have a job, you have to make sure you're not present, and I won't get into graphic detail, but it's some work and it's some time. And uh, there was a certain point when I remember taking, this was probably at about 20 years old when I said it was really bad when I was young, I remember taking a box of X-Lax, which I think is 20, I want to say 23 pills. <sighs> Poor little teenager girl um, that I was, um, and binging. So that went away over the years on its own accord, just from getting older and seeing a lot of natural doctors who switched the poison toxic pills into more natural pills, and I took less of them, and and it all looked very sort of natural, and and there was a whole sort of um, holistic sort of self-help industry that supported the type of bulimic that I became. There were special therapies where you could clean things out and, and feel all skinny and have people tell you that you were detoxifying and all sorts of good stuff like that. So um, passing by that glamorous phase and back into um, brain cancer, so when my father uh, did pass of that disease, um, I finished working where I was singing and dancing on the cruise ships, and I came home to Los Angeles, and that was the point when I made the decision to come back to Overeaters Anonymous after I guess about 10 years or so of being away, uh, really getting um, that I was spiritually bottomed out and I got a good sponsor right away. 
And um, I got I got the sponsor sight unseen, in fact. And it's very interesting to me because I see people spending a lot of time and energy and effort trying to pick, like, the perfect sponsor. And I was desperate. I was in pain. I had connected with a fellow. And she wasn't available. She became a friend. And she said, she told me on the phone, I know someone who I think is available right now, and she's great. She's got a lot of the time. Give her a call. Called her, met her on the phone, started working steps on the phone, finally met with her in person a couple weeks later. And except for a brief period of about two or three years, somewhere in the middle, she's been my sponsor for the better part of nine years. Um, and she's been exactly the sponsor that I needed. Absolutely, exactly. Um, and she's strong. And she put my face in the big book. And she put my face in the steps. And I was willing because I was in pain. And I was willing because I knew I was spiritually sick. And I, the only thing I wanted more finally than to fit into the perfect genes was to not care that much either way. And um, I got that. I got that. I have that today. I've had that for years. I've had that for years. It's amazing how much less I care. Um, yeah, it's ama- it, my, it kind of boggles my mind to think about the obsession that I used to live with on a daily basis. I'd like to talk about the steps a little bit. What do I have, like, twenty? Oh, God. Okay. Um, step one was uh, the hardest step for me of all. Um, I know it's easy for some. Um, I come from, I don't know, sort of upper middle class, kind of intellectualish. Beverly Hills, L.A. background, whatever, West Side Girl, and, um, like, religion was something that we had as a culture, um, and the rest was kind of like brain power and success and being driven and getting things done. Um, the concept of powerlessness was really foreign to me and really difficult to admit. Um, so the way that I started step one was by acting as if. Um, and that worked just fine for me, I have to say. I know some people can admit powerlessness within every cell in their being, um, but that wasn't my experience. I just sort of pretended that I felt powerless and moved on, and it worked. Um, and I see now that I was absolutely entirely powerless over food and body obsession and am still. Now it's much easier for me to admit and believe. Um, step two, my sponsor had me do this wonderful assignment um, sort of writing about my concept of what my higher power had been in my lifetime, all the diets, the men I obsessed over, the uh, events that I canceled and didn't show up because I felt fat, the jobs I called in fat for, um, pleasing my parents, um, the the God in heaven thing with the beard and the staff and the, you know, that God, All, all of my concepts of what my higher power used to be. She had me write about that. She had me write about what my concept of my higher power was, which in the current moment, which was started, like as many do, with the OA group. Um, And eventually, uh, she had me write about the most radical, crazy, audacious, fabulous, omnipotent, loving, higher power I could imagine. And she told me I didn't have to believe in it. I just had to write about what that could be. And so I wrote and wrote and wrote. And um, I came up with something that was like, bigger than life and I came up with something that was really positive and that was important for me because um, 
Because shit happens. Can we say shit on the internet? I think it's good. Because stuff happens. And, um, you know, I, I, I was, I'm, I mean, I'm, as I said, I, I entered the program on the heels of surviving my father's death to brain cancer. And the only way that I can turn my will and life over to higher power is if I believe in that higher power and love and appreciate that higher power. And if I hold my higher power accountable for stuff like that, I can't do it. So the way that I was able to do this when I worked step two is I sort of said, shit happens. I don't know why, it just does. And I left it at that. And then I made my higher power responsible for what I make of it, for the good that I can do, the good that happens to me, the good that happens because of me, around me, in the rest of the world. I don't hold my higher power accountable for brain cancer. I don't hold my higher power accountable for terrorism, for death, for illness. None of it. I can't. I can't. And that's fine, but I can't do it because I won't pray to that higher power. So that's just random stuff. (laughs) That's the way way I do it. And that really lightened me up right there. So that when I got to step three and it was time to turn my will and life over to the care of my higher power and my food and body obsession, it was like, well, okay, why not? Because my higher power is like this really fun, cool, loving, helpful, smart badass. So why not? So I did it. And uh, felt lighter and got into my fourth step, and, um, which is taking a search, searching and fearless moral inventory, um, and wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote, handed it over, and felt a little lighter still. And I'm not talking physically, um, although I guess that probably was happening too, now that I look back it was, but I was feeling spiritually lighter, and I noticed that like things that that were really significant and heavy in my day were just not as big a deal. And I don't know, you know, many of you have probably heard that joke, like, what does a normie do when they get a flat tire? They call AAA. What do we do? We call suicide hotline. And it's like that, like, oh, I have a flat tire. Maybe I'll just call AAA. That thing just started to, it started to happen for me. Um... Steps six and seven are my personal favorite steps, if you can have such a thing. Um, it's where I find the real relief to be, um, identifying my defects of character and handing them over to my higher power for him, her, or it to remove. Huge, huge, huge relief for me. Um, because what I found was that basically almost everything that I'm in pain about in life has some kind of defective character attached to it of mine. I'll give an example. Since I talked about body obsession, let's just take the defective character vanity. So if I'm in the mirror and I'm feeling paralyzed and I don't want to go out and I'm analyzing this and that and this and that, the truth is, no matter what size I am, what steps six and seven helps me see is that the problem I actually have is my vanity. It's my self-obsession. It's not my body. Because no matter what size I am, I can leave, (laughs) I can go out into the world and carry about my day and be of service. So my actual problem is never my genes, no matter what they're doing. It's my vanity, it's my self-obsession, it's my self-centeredness, it's my fear, um, it's my self-seeking, etc., etc. Huge, huge load off my back to know that like, oh, I just have a vanity problem. Oh, I just have a self-obsession problem. And I don't even have to fix it. I can just ask my higher power, dude, take this, please, because it's not helping the situation. And, you know, those defects of character are all still with me, of course, but they're so much mellower 
there's so much like not calling the shots all the time. Amends steps eight and nine were not terribly difficult for me. Um, and I don't have much powerful information about amends, although I know some people do. I feel like a great deal of the amends that I had to make were to myself. A lot of the harm that I did was to myself. Some of the amends was just the not abusing myself with food, not sitting in the mirror and hating myself. Um, some of the amends had to do with showing up for people when I didn't want to, which was really big because the, the thing that had led me to the rooms when my father was ill and I couldn't show up for him. So it was like, oh, here's an opportunity. So now when a friend needs me, when a family member needs me, you know, I more often than not choose to figure out a way to help. Tenth step. <laughs> I'm laughing about that because things got a little crazy this last couple of months. I have a, a very sick cat at home who I'm very, very, very close with and I love very much. And she's um in the last couple of months of her life probably, last few months. And I found myself turning into the same person that I was when I came into these rooms when my father was ill, which was sort of belligerent, fighting a lot, um, tense, in denial, self-obsessed, freaking out about my body, random stuff having nothing to do with my cat's illness, but the, the exciting stuff that my disease um, comes up with as an alternative. And it's because of tense steps that I was able to see it in paper because I did that writing and I handed it over to my sponsor and I went, oh yeah, here's what's going on. You're in pain about your cat. You're in pain about your cat. You're not fatter. You're not more of an asshole. You're not nicer. You're not prettier. You're not uglier. You're not dumber. Nothing's happened. Here's the thing. You're sad. And you're coming up with everything else you can to try to avoid this pain. That's what I do. I'm a compulsive eater. I'm an addict. And I'm very creative about it. <laughs> Um, but it takes that writing, and it takes that handing over to my sponsor. Is it fun? No. I can tell you unabashedly, it's really, really unpleasant work. I do not like writing my step work. I don't like calling my sponsor. I will never enjoy this work. But I absolutely love what I get as a result, which is freedom and authenticity. Because the fact of the matter is, I'm sad about my cat. There's an authenticity about that. And then so I can enter a room and stand here before you with a certain authenticity about me instead of being some kind of a poser and worried about, like, is everything tucked in and perfect and, you know, I don't have to do that. I can just relax and tell you stories about X-Lax <laughs> and, and be like, it's cool. It's fine. I'm not worried. Like, I'm not, I don't care. If, you know, it's, that's my story, you know. Step 11, uh, boy, I want to wrap it up soon because I want you guys, I want to hear questions. Step 11 is something I do very imperfectly on a daily basis. <laughs> I'm much better at the prayer than the meditating. Um, much better at the asking than the listening for the answer. What can I say? It's a work in progress. Um, but I'm, very, I'm good at prayer. I am good at that, I must say. Um, um, go me. <laughs> Step 12 is my second favorite step after six, seven combination. Because I feel like that's where we're living the steps. That's like out, I hate the homework, I hate the writing, I hate the calling the sponsor. Step 12 to me is about how am I going to apply this to my life? And I love that because I have conflict all the time. So I can be driving down Bundy and somebody pisses me off 
and I want to feel aggressive. I want to chase them down. I want, and like step 12 says right then and there, I can practice the principles of the 12 steps in all my affairs. Like I can, I can be of love and service right then and there. I can have compassion for the a-hole that cut me off. I can compassion, I have compassion for me that I'm so upset about it, etc. So I'm making all this up, but you get the idea. So, um, I feel like step 12 is like the living the life step. Um, and I'm really grateful for that. Like, I'm really grateful that this program is not school. You know? It's not homework. It's not teachers and assignments and homework and grading. It's these are principles that we can use in a practical way to solve problems we have in our life so that we can go out and be saner, healthier, lighter, brighter people who strangely eat more or less based on whatever it is we need to have half then, whether we're compulsive eaters, anorexics, whatever. I don't know why this lightens my load, this approach, these steps, but it does. For some reason, I sit down to a meal and... What used to be, what used to take to be enough, now it takes so much less. I don't know why. I don't know why. I eat everything under the sun as far as abstinence. I abstain, bottom line, from binging. Um, I obviously don't abuse laxatives anymore. And if I'm struggling, I pray at mealtimes and I ask for help and I get it. For the newcomer, um, I have uh, nine years of abstaining from the things I just mentioned. Um, I don't talk about this often, it's not really my thing, but whatever, I'm maintaining this body size, whatever it is, for the last, I guess, eight years or so, and uh, it hasn't changed, and I'm really not all that focused on it anyway, but um, I, guess it, I guess it matters, so I should mention. Um, I think that's all I really want to say, because I really want to have time. Do I have time for questions? Good. Let's have some, can we? Questions? You say you eat everything. Are there certain foods that used to trigger you that don't trigger you anymore? Yes, 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 and yes. That is something, and, and, and I'll tell you, this is totally exclusively my experience, or maybe not exclusively, but definitely my experience, because I know some people absolutely have allergy foods. Repeat the question. Oh, she asked me, thank you, Atissa. She asked me if, if the, um, there are certain foods that trigger me that maybe now that I can eat, is that essentially right? Um, so when I was a newcomer, I expected to have a list of, like, this for the Internet. I'm waving my arms very large, a very long list of things that I could not eat. Um, that's what I expected because I, there were so many, quote-unquote, allergy foods to me. I definitely thought sugar and, like, high fat and white flour and all that were going to be a problem for me. And, boy, I hesitate to say this because I, I don't know what triggers people and what doesn't. I won't get too specific. I'll share in a general way. But I was um, sponsor-directed to eat a certain substance that terrified me, that is an unhealthy substance, for a week every day. And, uh, and I was scared because I thought for sure I'd get fat, and I, was for sh- and I thought for sure that I would eat nothing but it all the time. And I found that it was the opposite. I found that it was hard for me to eat and that I didn't want to and that I had to go out of my way to try to eat it. Um, so, yes, I eat everything under the sun, uh, with no reservations. I don't think about it. I just pray about it and um, eat God-sized portions. You mentioned that um, you, the work is not homework. 
Was there anything where at first it did feel like yeah. you have to get an A and all that stuff? Yes, absolutely. Um, the question was, she said that I mentioned that the work of this program is not the same as homework, and was there a point, what was the second part? Well, my question is, how did you get, how do you get past that? How did I get past that headset that it's like homework? Okay. Basically, I feel like as a newcomer going through their 12 steps for the first time, it is a little homeworky. There's a lot of writing. There's a lot of calling. There's a lot of reading. Um, but the difference is your sponsor is not a teacher. You're not being graded. It doesn't need to be done perfectly. Like a fourth step to me, a successful fourth step is one that's done. Period. <laughs> That's it. And, you know, I remember I had, I was sponsoring a newcomer at one point that worked steps one, two, and three really quickly, then got to step four and said, I'm not ready. And I said, I'm sorry, we can't work together then. I mean, lovingly, I wasn't like, you're fired out the door. I was just like, if you're not ready to work your fourth step, like, what are we going to do? What are you going to call me about? Like, this is what we do. We're going to work steps. Like, sorry. And she was like, okay. And she left program because she didn't want to do it. Um, totally fine. God bless her. I hope she's in a room somewhere now. Um, I mean, in a 12-step room, working a program. So I think the first time around, there is a homeworky kind of quality. Um, but I feel like the assignments that our sponsors give us came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us for, for, to sanity, for example. My sponsor might have me write, 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 homework, homework, homework. But coming to believe is not homework. Coming to believe is just coming to believe. The homework is what I do so that I can get to believe because I'm a stubborn shit that doesn't believe that I have an eating disorder and doesn't believe I'm powerless over food and doesn't believe that a power greater than ourselves can help me. So I have to do all that writing just to help me get to coming to believe. If I could just believe like that, I wouldn't need the writing. Does that make sense? Does that answer your question? Yeah. How long would you say take on the average to do the twelve steps, or is it an average, or is it for everybody? How long does it take to do the to work to work the twelve steps? The question. Um, this is absolutely. I mean, boy. I mean, there could be like riots in the street over different answers to this question. I mean, this is a very like this is a very fundamental kind of twelve step question. This is absolutely in the school of opinion. I think there is no answer to that. I will tell you this. What worked for me is to put my nose in the book and not take it out. That's what I know, especially the first time through all 12, is that it's not so much about how quickly. It, it's not the speed, but the consistency. In my experience, that was roughly a year. So, I mean, averaging, I guess I probably allotted about a month to a step, but not really because probably steps one and two were quick and probably step four was forever and probably step ten was a while, things like that. But I would say... About a year is what it took for me. There is no rule. And just a follow-up, then mm -hmm. you keep saying the first time, so, so if one stays in the program, you keep doing them over and over? Um, also, could be riots in the street debating that question. <laughs> um, some do, some don't. Um, mine was, a vi I only very, very formally uh, worked all 12 steps once. That was the very first time. I work all 12 steps regularly now but it's not always in order it's not always over food one through 12 go take the next year or two of your life it's sometimes it's now just you need to you need to you, you know talk to my sponsor I'm enraging and crazy and she says you need to write a 10 step 
or talk to my sponsor and I'm uh, obsessed and fearful and she's like, oh, defective character, fear, like we need to talk about step six, seven, and then she'll maybe give me some reading or some writing too around that. So always working steps uh, formally from one to 12 in sequence once for me. Could you please share with us your, uh, some of your direct experiences of your higher power? Maybe the beginnings of the program? Sharing, he asked me if I could share um, direct experiences um, with my higher power, higher power, especially in the beginning of working my program. My, my higher power is like, my higher power is like logical. My higher power is not like a really mystical, woo-woo, kind of like burning incense kind of higher power. My higher power is very like, dude, don't yell at this person. Do you know what I mean? Like, my higher higher power is like, I don't, I'm not, I don't hear a lot of voices and I don't read a lot of health self books and I don't go to a lot of workshops and I I told you I'm a bad meditate bad. Um, You know, it's just like, there's a logical sort of like intuition. There's this thing in the big book talks about, like when we're when we're in. I'm going to paraphrase terribly. Um, when we're having moments of indecision, that we pause and ask for our higher power for guidance. That's my higher power. Like me, mania, craziness, anger, obsession, fear, hatred, jealousy, blah blah blah. And then like the pause where I say, I need some help. You know, can you hook a girl up? Like, what do you got? Like, whatever that little softness that falls over me in that moment, that's my higher power. It's like very, very non-woo-woo. Okay, one, two. Thank you so much. When you are having a hard time surrendering to something or accepting something, how do you work on that? The question was, when I'm having a hard time surrendering something and and a hard time accepting it, how do I work on that? Um, I act as if. I act as if. Like I said, practical, logical, intuitive kind of higher power. I am not responsible for wanting to surrender things that I don't. You know, um, my higher power is in charge. I am human and extremely flawed, and I'm really bad at so many things. And surrendering them, and surrendering is one of them. If surrendering were easy and natural for me, I don't think I would earn a seat in this room. Um, So if I don't want to surrender something, but I need to, then I will make a lot of calls and scream and yell and stamp my fist. No, I'll stamp my feet and hurl my fist, I guess, and say, I don't want to surrender. And my sponsor will say, you might want to consider doing so anyway. And I'll say to my higher power, I don't want to surrender this. Uh, Help a girl out. And somewhere along the line, that softening occurs again. And if it doesn't occur just because I've asked, then my experience is I have more writing to do and more phone calls to do. Um, because if, I, if it was enough for me to just say, I surrender, go, um, I wouldn't need 12 steps. I could just like find some religion out there in the world and just be like, I can't believe in God. Go ahead, make the miracle. But the, that's where like that's that's why I have to do some of the homeworky stuff. 
so that I can get the clarity so that I really, truly can surrender. Yes. I apologize if you covered this already, then it's the first few minutes, but have you had experience um, having to plan a food sponsor or being a food sponsor? Yes. Both. Um, she asked if I had experience uh, with a food plan, having a food sponsor, or being a food sponsor. Um, so the experience of the whole food plan, food sponsor thing. Okay. Um, I feel kind of passionately about this issue. Um, there, th- this is my understanding of eight tools in Overeaters Anonymous, one of which is called a plan of eating. Um, a plan of eating to me as a tool is not the same thing as a diet or even a food plan. It's a plan of eating, which to me could mean I plan not to eat sugar, I plan to eat sugar, I could plan not to eat white flour, but it could also mean I pray to, I plan to pray at mealtime. It, it also means I plan to make three phone calls today to help me with my eating. It could mean um, I plan to pray before my meal and three quarters through when I think I might be getting close to the end and I need help. Um, but those are all things that are like a plan of eating. Um, and it's an important distinction for me because I feel like um, sometimes I hear food plan as like something that's like just on a piece of paper that you just hand to someone and we all copy. And I think it's got a more lifelike quality to it, the way that I think of it. Anyway, I got the big thank you flash. So there it is. Thank you so much, Amessa. Thank you. Thank you.